This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, guys, let's start a little bit differently today Mm. with a rousing game Mm. of Fuck, Marry, Kill. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Okay. Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy. Got it, yes. In the Mm -hmm. BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Mm Timothy Timmy Chalamet as Laurie Lawrence in Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Okay. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Kirsten Kiki Dunst as Marie Antoinette in Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. Couldn't be easier. Oh, my God. Couldn't be easier. Okay. Wow. Okay, Alex, I gather you want to start. Of course. Um, <laughs> fuck Marie Antoinette. Oh, interesting. Marry Mr. Darcy, Colin first Mr. Darcy, and kill <laughs> Timothy Chalamet as Laurie. We all know that Laurie is not really – I mean, yes, he gets married. He gets married to Amy, but I don't think you want to live your life with Laurie. And do I even need to justify marrying Colin first Mr. Darcy? I think that's self-evident. I, I get it, but, but disagree. <gasps> okay. Yeah. You have to fuck Timothy Chalamet. Okay. Because that's what – like, that is his role in every movie. It's oh, like the interesting. Fuckable poppet. Okay. <laughs> um, it's a Mary, too much poppet. <laughs> Mary, but but also fuck Marie Antoinette. Wow. <laughs> and then yeah, I mean fucking kill Darcy. It's what? enough. It's oh enough. My God. I'm not working that hard for th- anything. Oh. Excuse wow. me. You gotta like me at the beginning. That's my role. First I impressions count that. with Vincent Cunningham. Say some nice right. shit to me immediately. No Compliment me. Okay. Me. Oh, I have to do it. Why not? Mm-hmm. Oh my God! No, this is impossible. It's impossible. I mean, I don't. We've know. just done it. Hoisted on your own target. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Critics at Large, a podcast from the New Yorker. I'm Vincent Cunningham. I'm Alex Schwartz, and I'm Domi Fry, and we are all staff writers at the New Yorker. And each week, we make sense of what's happening in the culture right now and how we got here. So today. We are going to talk about one of the greatest genres of all time, the period drama. Every year around the holidays, we all gather around the family hearth <laughs> <laughs> to, to watch one of the genres that seems to go uh, along beautifully with um, the holidays, the period drama. You know, it's 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 cozy, it's celebratory. Um, mm-hmm. So here we are. Do you guys have any favorites? You know, it's funny. I learned preparing for this episode mm-hmm. that I don't have a deep bank of references in this genre. It really has not been a touchstone for me. So much so that I would say that one of my favorite ones is, in fact, Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Give me another hours. We've been writing. Oh, I got carried away with our delicious revenge play last night. Poison. No, no poison. It's Christmas. Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents. It's so dreadful being poor. It's not fair. How come some girls get to have lots of pretty things and others have nothing at least be a father and mother and teacher. We haven't got father and we won't have him for as long as this war drags on. I think it was like worked for me on a deep level. I loved it. It It's tied for my favorite of her films. Um, What's the other one? Lady Bird. 
Okay. With Timothy Chalamet as a fuckable poppet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> again. Uh, once again. Okay. Okay. Alex. Okay. Here we go. You're like, do I have 17 hours? Do I have 17 hours? Well, I'm a bit of a Merchant Ivory girl. Um, I do love Nomi. I think you also do A Room with a View. Oh, I love with Room with Helena a View. Helena Bonham Carter as Lucy Honeychurch and, of course, a great Daniel Day-Lewis performance. I want to ask you something that I have never asked before. Hot sizzle. Yes? Up to now, I have never kissed you. No, you haven't. May I now? Well, of course you may, Cecil. You might before. I can't run at you, you know. I also, for a more recent selection, extremely love Bright Star, Jane Campion's film. Oh, I like that one, yeah. Yes, uh, about about Keats, John Keats, mm-hmm. played by Ben Whishaw. Mm-hmm. My dearest lady, I'm now at a very pleasant cottage window looking onto a beautifully hilly country with a view of the sea. The morning is very fine. I do not know how elastic my spirit might be what pleasure I might have in living here if the remembrance of you did not weigh so upon me. He's great in that movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Fan- and Fanny Braun, his love, yes. by Abby Cornish. Um, and also, you know, I, I don't always admit this because I know people have strong feelings one way or another, but I do love Joe Wright's 2005 Pride and Prejudice with Keira Knightley and, and Matthew, Matthew McFadyen yeah. as Mr. Darcy. Uh, yeah. If your feelings are still what they were last April, tell me so at once. My affections and wishes have not changed. But one word from you will silence me forever. So honestly, there really are so many classic period dramas, and we're definitely going to talk about them today. But we're also going to talk about a new kind of period drama that we've been seeing in recent years that combine the past and the present in new and sometimes jarring ways. Bridgerton, I'm thinking about The Great on Hulu that stars Elle Fanning as Catherine the Great. And most recently, uh, a new show that just came out on Apple TV Plus called The Buccaneers. For certain girls of refinement, New York has become too limited. I quite agree. But he insists that I invite you and your daughters to London. London. London, London. For the debutante's ball. Which is an adaptation of the unfinished Edith Wharton novel of the same name. The dialogue, for instance, in The Buccaneer sounds really modern. The soundtrack is modern. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a kind of a trend right now where historical accuracy is getting thrown out the window and contemporary flourishes abound. So I think what we're going to try to do today and to determine definitively <laughs> is what we want from the period <laughs> drama right now. Mm. Both the kind of more established stately genre as we've known it for the past few decades Uh, But also from the new kind of period drama, like The Buccaneers, that tries to modernize the past in a variety of ways. So that's today on Critics at Large, the past, present and future of the period drama.
Okay, my friends. Uh, what are your must-haves in a period drama? What are the crucial ingredients for you in this delectable genre? I'd be surprised if I didn't see a ball or two. Okay. You know, this genre tends to include a lot of people standing in a line knowing exactly what little dance moves to make at each other, swinging, stepping, curtsying, bowing. And yet the tension. Well, the tension. Naturally. Yes. How about you, Vincent? Of course, the the costuming is a huge part of it. But I think especially for me, what I like, a trope that I like is um, showing that two women are friends by showing us one woman tightening the like oh, bustier the or whatever the corset of the, the other, just like helping her with her strings. And, someti- and sometimes it means that they're enemies. Some right, if it's too tight, if it's too hard, going? it's like, and it's like we yeah. know that there's some aggression in the gesture. Right. I also like the exteriors of the big house. There's oh, always the a moment manor, where like, you, you show up house. to the manor and you look around the manor house and you see the sort of yes. the, that that landscape shot is also to me one of the touchstones. Yeah. Do you have specific characters or scenes that you love? Hmm. Well, I mean, I feel like I'm I am just circling circling on some of you know some of my preferred ones, but the scene in Bright As Star, I don't know I don't know if I should mention it again as no, if please, we've never mentioned do. it before. Yeah, please do. Um, there is a scene in that movie where Keats staying in the next room, staying at the Bronze House, taps the wall where he knows you know Fanny's on the other side, and this is broad daylight, by the way, and her sis- little sister's in the room, and she <laughs> taps the wall on her side. It is Eros. Oh, my God. (laughs) You know, in the chaste bright star, these lovers barely touch. I think there's a moment where a sleeve is... is Brushed. Oh, is brushed. (laughs) (laughs) Alex. (laughs) You know, I have a a theory. I don't know if it's it's a theory that holds for everyone, but I think it certainly holds for me. I came of age in the 90s, and I – so kind of part of my fodder was um, – Did you my, wear corsets then, Nomi? I did. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago, Alex. <laughs> um, part of my cultural fodder was Merchant Ivory movies, Room with a View, um, you know, Remains of the Day, Howard's End, mm-hmm. you know. And um, – I feel like when you are a teen or a tween, let's say, (laughs) on the verge, who already has kind of like sexual and romantic feelings or fantasies, but you are not yet active. I think what you're describing is a special time in a young girl's life. It's a very special time in every young girl's life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you have at your fingertips these... uh, period dramas. There is something about the relative chasteness. So, of course, you know, the kind of fault line between the proper, you know, propriety, the Mm -hmm. costuming, and Mm -hmm. so on, rules and regulations, and uh, the desires and the beating heart of passion underneath the the corset. Um, That is very apt for that period of life, because they capture the, the feeling of, like, the pathway towards sexuality and romance rather than the actual enactment of sexuality and romance. Yeah. Uh, at least for me. <laughs> no, that's totally right. And it's like... But do you know what I mean? I t- it's totally right. Yeah. And, you know, this reminds me of the, cause the other person besides Forster who obviously ramifies heavily in this genre is Jane Austen. Yes, of course. And my favorite of her novels, 
I've actually never watched an, uh, an adaptation of it in film or TV, mm-hmm. Mansfield Park. Okay. I knew you were about to say that. There is an amazing is adaptation. There? Thank you so much. I'm going to check so it out. I was so hoping you were about to say Mansfield I'm, Park I'm, so I could just drop that. It, it is my favorite of her novels, and it is so concerned with, you know, That's this so original fa- Fanny Price yes. who, like, has a sort of, like, religious crisis about all of this, and, and it, it presents as a total moral quandary. Yes. She's like— dropped into this almost like hornet's nest of sort of budding sexuality and has to absolutely like orient herself in this exact way. So can we think together about some of the parameters of the period drama? Uh, Because the period in question is pretty specific, as might be some of of the other parameters. Um, You know, mostly I think we're talking about Certain boxes that are checked, uh, white, upper middle class, you know, colonial powers. Um, yeah, it's a kind of roving genre. You know, it's like, when does it end? Does it end when women are allowed to wear pants in society? That could be like, are we talking that's about a, that? That's a, that's a good get. That's I mean, a good, that's, uh, that's like yeah. a maybe a loose parameter. Yeah. Because if you set a movie in the 30s or the 40s, it would certainly be the past um, and it would be historical drama. But mm-hmm. would we consider it to be a period drama? I don't know. We have to. But, you know, there there are other Class is an interesting one because, of course, a lot of the things that make these movies so um, luscious to watch and so sensually enjoyable are all accoutrements of wealth. Um, yes. you know, and often class itself is a main part of the film mm-hmm. that there's there's mm-hmm. uh, you know people want to elevate themselves in terms of class through marriage through alliances. Um, yeah, and you know there are others I can think of. I can think of um, like. I'm even thinking of Memoirs of a Geisha, which was a huge hit as a novel. I mean, written by a white American man Mm -hmm. about a geisha in pre-World War II Japan. She always my new protege. As lovely as her big sister. And with eyes the color of rain. The Baron is a very special man to me. My Danna. Someday, if you are fortunate, you will have a patron, too. Don't kneel. You are not a servant girl anymore. That was made into a movie that I think was a big success. You know, similarly, the kind of— It was, I think, yeah. Yeah, sumptuousness of the visuals. Um, you know, their Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is— it has martial arts in it, and that kind of spectacle is part of it, which, I mean, you're not going to, like, open Jane Austen and find someone leaping through the air with a sword. No. But similarly, a sense of romance, drama, the custom, you know, honor and what it allows and prevents. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it it depends on what we mean by period, you know. We, we are talking about a certain period into which we stuff a lot of, as you say, you know, European – tropes that we think about, mainly European or Mm Anglo-European. But there are certainly others that fulfill the same um, emphasis on surfaces and what they mean about the spirit, you know, that can that that is more portable. I love that. Emphasis on surfaces and what they mean about the spirit. What would we say is the lasting appeal of of the period drama? Like, why do we still like it? Like, God knows... It's the world is different now. Maybe that's why we like it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I think of mining the past for material, I kind of think that different moments lend themselves to different texts and adaptations of text. I mean, that is one reason why I was really into the adaptation of E.M. Forster's Howard's End that came out in 2017. 
you know, Howard's End itself is very is about modernity and the past clashing. It's about the great English tradition seen through the metaphor of a house colliding with, first of all, art and free thinking in the form of the two Schlegel sisters who are not looking to get married off. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely love and marriage is part of the plot, but it is not part of their life. They are they are ready to just, you know, live alone and go to concerts and think about literature and be free. When we came home, then Timmy got hay fever and Helen went on alone. That's really all I can tell you. Oh, you girls have always been so independent. Isn't that generally reckoned to be a good thing, Aunt Julie? Well, I'm sure I don't know. But I have always thought that the care of your sister and brother too great a burden to place upon a young woman of your tender years. Your youth has practically been thrown away on your precious independence. Practically. Yes, Margaret, it So has. that, to me, in the, in the way that they get ground under and their ideals get ground under by the realities of their increasingly fast-paced capitalist society, felt super contemporary, um, even done in this kind of period-appropriate way. If we watch the period drama, in part at least to be transported to the past, why do today's entries into the genre feel so modern? That's in a minute on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. And if you are watching this video... Either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Our negative thoughts can stick with us, so we all have something to get off our chest. Therapy is a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down, so you can get some relief and find a solution. BetterHelp offers professional, affordable online therapy on a flexible schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash critics today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash critics. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So before we pick back up again, just a quick announcement. I know that each week we talk about a lot of different texts, books, movies, on and on. 
And those titles can really fly by in conversation. Yes, indeed. Oh, do they? <laughs> they do for us, too. <laughs> uh, so we're starting something new this week, really exciting, and keeping a list of everything we talk about on each episode. So if you want to take a look, head to newyorker.com slash critics for that list. Okay, back to the show now. So, you guys, at some point in the past, say, five years or so, I think there's been a real shift as these stories that are set in the past have started to incorporate elements that are actually very contemporary. Um, where have we been seeing this? What what shows, movies, and also how how do we feel about this shift? So I think I became aware of this first with Dickinson, uh, the show on Apple TV Plus. Um, Elena Smith is the showrunner about Emily Dickinson's life. Mm-hmm. And this was in 2019, I think. It's, it's I think that was the first season, started. right? Yeah, there, yeah. Were, there were three seasons. That mm-hmm. was the first season. And the big deal about Dickinson was it's about Emily Dickinson, but – she talks just like you, and so does her family. <laughs> and when they have a party at right. her house, when her parents go to Boston for the night. Hey everybody! We have a special treat tonight. Ooh, is it pound cake? Better. We got opium. Oh, whatever. We have that in Japan. Oh, my God. She's so insane. Of course she's insane. She's Emily Dickinson. Should I do opium? You know, she and her brother and sister have a party where they all do little drops of opium on their tongues. Who wants a drop? And they twerk and they dance to contemporary music. Yeah, there's and like Billie Eilish. You're immersed in this world that is kind of of the past, but very much of the present at the same time. You got mm-hmm. the costumes, but you also have people speaking like kids today speak. And I will admit that when I first saw it, I thought, Oh, no, not for me. <laughs> I love your internal monologue. Well, that, yeah, it was. Is that uh, the voice you put on when you when you heard of it? Probably. Yeah, probably. <laughs> if I'm being honest, I thought, yeah, but, you know, and she's going to her desk and she's writing her poems. And then I thought, OK, well, this was a person. She mm-hmm. wasn't just a she didn't just materialize, you know, out of a mythic mist. And no, she did not speak like kids today speak, but she spoke like kids then spoke. Mm-hmm. So I understood that the point of this was to try to translate into contemporary terms what it would have been like in some way to encounter Emily Dickinson if she were of your own time. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, granted, there have been earlier examples of this. I mean, who could forget Sofia Coppola's 2006 uh, movie Marie Antoinette, yes. where right. um, Kristen Dunst plays the beleaguered queen, who's sort of just like a kind of a decadent party girl. The soundtrack was full of like New Order songs, Gang of Four, you know, all of that. It was basically all about the pursuit of of pleasure, and uh, in a way that felt very kind of anachronistic. So we've had this for a while, but it's true. That Dickinson, I feel like, was the harbinger of the current kind of vogue for this kind of uh, version of the period drama. We also have Bridgerton, which I know, uh, Vincent, you have watched on Netflix. Yes, Bridgerton is like this, and it it adds to this sort of contemporary feel. I would class this also with one of my favorites, which is The Great, Tony McNamara showrun. Uh, Elle Fanning as as Catherine the Great. Yes. And in that and Bridgerton, part of what the recourse to the contemporary enables is is comedy. We won't talk about it for too long, but I did see 
uh, the new Ridley Scott movie Napoleon. Oh, okay, yeah. uh, yes, tell us uh, about it. Which is like it. you know, it's 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 about it, it is a Napoleon biopic at least, or not biopic, but sort of career pick. It like starts in his early career <laughs> career as a young. I love military. his early work. Yes, exactly, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> And goes until, you know, sort of the aftermath of the the defeat at Waterloo. Um, It has had mixed reception, this movie. But it gets a lot of laughs. And a lot of the times when it gets laughs, one of the things that happens, first of all, is like, you know, it is period in in that, like, that annoying period thing where they're in French, but everybody has a British accent. Except for the lower classes. Sometimes there's a washerwoman that's like, monsieur. But everybody else just has a British accent. It's so fucking weird. And... Uh, Joaquin Phoenix, who plays Napoleon, is the only person who he just like speaks an American accent. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, like, there's one moment when he like blows up at this like British eminence and says, "You guys think you're so great because you have boats." And it's like it's it's weirdly funny in the in the in the moment, but it's like also all recourse to period is gone. It's like a very modern moment, and it's like to create the tonal variances. I need to laugh here, so now we're contemporary. Mm -hmm. And then we go back to Mr. Commander, sir, like this formality. So there's like a weird interplay where it's like it becomes a new tool in in a toolkit of um, tones and moods and and sort of genre moments. Um, But Bridgerton, which was created and showrun by Chris Van Dusen and it was uh, produced by one of, you know, the sort of glitziest, Storytellers around Shonda <laughs> Rhimes. Um, what it adds to this canon, I think, is a very anachronistic um, presentation of race where, you know, the main love interest is uh, Reggae Jean Page, mm-hmm. the, the, the sort of like dashing black man, you know, yeah. and they're this mm-hmm. sort of going along with the the sort of our contemporary world's uh, ideas of quote-unquote colorblind casting, yes. sort of making a Benetton ad version of the past yeah. um, is, is another one of the sort of innovations of this new genre. Right, yes. And now we have uh, another entry in this sort of uh, genre of like the modern period drama or the modernized period drama, which is based on an Edith Wharton novel, her last novel, Unfinished, uh, called The Buccaneers. Um, and this show just uh, began airing on Apple TV Plus. And uh, would one of you guys want to tell us what this show is is about before we start discussing it? Sure. The Buccaneers is um, set as is the novel in the 1870s mm-hmm. um, when Edith Wharton in real life would have been a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is about a sort of loose affiliated coterie of Americans who are sort of out and looking for suitable partners are sort of romantically unsuccessful in New York and they're uh, invited to go to London. Um, And they sort of go to London and take in the London season. And there's a lot of Romantic misadventures. Hijinks ensue. ensue. Hijinks ensue from that. But it's, it's, it's misplaced Americans, which is a Wharton trope, mm-hmm. um, sort of wreaking havoc on Europe. You look amazing. Girls, here is to a new world. Marriages, men, parties. Not particularly in that order. <laughs> Which comes first? Which comes first? Darlings. We always come first. Always. Always. Shall we swear on it in blood or champagne? Champagne! Of course! <laughs> 
I wish to add only one thing to that excellent synopsis, which is that the reason for the Americans to go to England and the reason that they are rejected in New York is that they are all new money. Mm -hmm. The old money New Yorkers want to have nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. But England, the oldest money of all, has no more money left to speak of. And so all of the drafty castles and a lot of drafty castles that need maintaining. And so all the lords and ladies in England want to, you know, they have to pinch their noses and put up with the Americans who have things like railroad money and steel money that right. they can bring and stock over. market money. Yes. And and so, you know, so this show, I wouldn't call it feminist. I would call it feministy. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good way of putting it. You know, like it's yeah. sort of like fake feminist. Like the the it, it starts with a voiceover of basically the protagonist uh, played by Kristen Frosseth, um, Nan, who is, uh, you know, one of these young ladies who goes over to London from New York saying, I was never supposed to be the main character. I was never supposed to be the main character. Always more than glad to let Ginny, my sister, and my friends compete for all that. Girls are taught to believe that if a story isn't a love story, it's a tragedy. And I had no interest at all in being involved with either one of those. As my daughter, my 12-year-old daughter said when we started watching it together, she said, oh, I get it. She's not like the other girls. (laughs) That's right. You know, and that's kind of the vibe of the whole show of like, oh, I know we're wearing these like, you know, corsets. But we're actually totally modern, you know? We should mention that there are many anachronistic things about it. Um, the soundtrack, for one, uh, the the theme song <laughs> is a pallid, <laughs> pallid cover <laughs> of uh, LCD Sound System, North American Scout. Um... Did this show work for you? Let's 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 talk it out. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> yes and no. I want to say. I mean, if I had not been broken in by broken sh- down, broken in and broken down <laughs> by shows like Dickinson and The Great and you know all the rest of it, I would really think, what is this? What is going on? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Since I do understand that this is now the way that we're doing period pieces, mm-hmm. uh, I'm primed to be like, all right, LCD sound system, let's go. Okay, like someone is pouring, <laughs> you know, someone is twerking in a corner and pouring champagne, like, gotcha, we're, we're good. Uh, that said, I, you know, the show is fine. It's, it's totally fine. I did not hate it. I certainly did not hate it. Um, it's thin and flimsy. Uh, and, and one, it's so flimsy. It's so flimsy. And one reason is when you do have these contemporary tropes, it makes the entire backbone of what of the constraints more confusing. That that to me is a main problem. So that's so well put. So mm-hmm. when you have um, you know girls acting freely and running about and um, acting like modern teenagers who are at a house party, it does. I think put so much pressure on both the contemporary aspect and on the past aspect that. All in all, the the central dramas, you know, one drama is is Conchita, who gets married to this English lord and is a real party girl and then f- finds herself totally stifled under the conventions of 
upper crust English life. You know, will she, will she reconcile herself to her fate or will she break free? Well, in the world of the novel in which she is really now kind of doomed to be locked into this marriage, she's going to have to work it out one way or another. Whereas free living Conchita, who seems like she's, a, you know, from 2023, you're a little bit like, well, maybe move on. You know, you don't have to see his parents every day. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What did you guys think about the racial aspect? Well, you know, it's funny because usually the modernizing move is to make race an issue, which it only this only really does obliquely. Conchita in the show is is black. Mm-hmm. You see for a moment at her wedding that the her mother is also black coated and the father is mm-hmm. white. Um, but she just says, "Oh, these people in London, I don't fit. They don't like me." And it and it could be because she's such a party girl, and it could be because of her race. They don't ever really make that clear. But but there if it's is about, a moment after like not treating right. race at all explicitly. There's a moment of like a microaggression with Lord Richard's parents right, 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 where right. she's like, oh, it's it, Conchita's like, oh, it's interesting that you don't seem to like me. I wonder why that is. But that also positions America as if it's as like, like, yeah, it's like a, I was fine in America. Uh, yeah. A utopia of <laughs> yeah. racial equality. That's so right. it's it's quite confusing. It's weird. And it's weird because it, that's not a modernizing move vis-a-vis the actual novel. Her racial origins are made very clear in the Buccaneers. Edith Wharton makes Conchita and her mother, the 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 Clausens, they're actually they're from Brazil. Oh, interesting. And it's and it's and it's foregrounded and they experience exclusion from polite society in Saratoga and in New York because That's of this very fact. Interesting. And um it creates a really interesting triangle of political economy that makes the the surfaces absolutely necessary. This is after the like the the Brazilian Revolution, where like that's when Brazil and the United States become more united, and mm-hmm. people are going to the Brazil to make mm-hmm. fortunes in the mines and in the on the coffee fields sure. or whatever. So this presence is, and there's like this whole triangle yes. of money, right? Mm-hmm. So there's these Americans, these talkative, intelligent, vulgar Amer- Americans, the decadent aristocracy of England, who like all the, this English wealth, if they have any wealth is definitely being extracted from the West Indies and the slave trade there. And mm-hmm. then you have this presence from South America. Yes. So there's like so much interesting stuff so that the the surfaces really matter. Right. And so that race really matters in this novel in the way that it doesn't in this show. Not at all. And it's funny, race for most of it doesn't seem to make any mark on anything. It's like this ahistoricism also covers, you know, it's there, there's something... That is, of course, like in a lot of ways progressive about making diversifying the cast and, you know, making characters uh, represent more for more viewers. And but at the same time, you know, there's a sense in which certain things in a period drama that might be, uh, you know, absolutely crucial to the way people behave and to their fortunes and so on uh, are elided. I mean, you know, one interesting thing is like the theater, for example, has been doing race blind casting for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, of course, Hamilton, if if we just want to. Well, Hamilton you know, is not even race blind casting. Well, Hamilton. It's, yeah, it makes a point of it. But I'm, I just mean. Yeah. yeah and and right. creates and creates yeah. all the kind of um, hist- raises enormous historical questions yes. about the past mm-hmm. while also tr- making a political point about the present mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, in ways mm-hmm. that you can absolutely take issue with, but is kind of a fascinating direct statement, Mm -hmm. as I think these shows are not 
quite um, yeah. trying to make the same kind of statement. Um, it's it's makes me think that we're in this kind of interesting in-between period of straddling the present and the past and mm-hmm. not being totally sure if we want just to have fun, if we want to make um, actual political and historical points or something weirdly in between. Yeah. So do we need these modern elements to make stories about the past interesting? That's in a minute on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. So you guys, do we have any big theories or small theories about why we're seeing this wave of shows like the Buccaneers that seek to tell these period stories with modern touches? Yes. Well, I think the most straight ahead theory is that um, a few avant-gardists came up with this idea as a way to shock the system, like mm-hmm. Sofia Coppola mm-hmm. um, with Marie Antoinette or, mm-hmm. you know, um, or Elena Smith with mm-hmm. Dickinson. And then producers <laughs> swiveled their heads and thought, oh, yeah, cool, great idea. Great idea. We're cool. into this. Let's do it. Let's open the floodgates. And a lot of imitation happened. I mean, part of it might be similar to what we were discussing on our Bachelor episode, our Golden Bachelor episode. Gary. There is Gary. <laughs> there is a demographic in that case – older people, in this case, younger people. But I think probably there was a sense, yeah, let's bring them in. The period genre is super dusty and um, it's old fashioned, it's old school, it's old hat. Let's play around with it um, and refresh it. Fine. Um, In a way, it seems a little bit Humiliating is not the right word. It's not the kindest it's a little, view it's a little of the pander- viewer. It's, pa- pandering. it's, it's pandering. pandering. That's what yeah, it is. Yeah. It's pandering. It's patronizing. It's, yeah. It's, you know, can you not cross the bridge in your own mind to the past? Um, we have to bring the past here directly, drop it in your lap and say, look, they're just like you. I mean, I do think that one experience of often reading um, let's say Edith Wharton, for me, is the shock of modernity. I mean, yeah. one of my absolute favorite Wharton books, The Custom of the Country. Which, oh, I love that. You know, The Custom of the Country is about a woman who comes, Undine Sprague, one of the greatest, one of the names, greatest names in all of fiction, comes from the Midwest and insert, tries to insert herself into New York society. And actually, unlike many of these heroines who we've been discussing succeeds. But it is not enough for her because the, you know, old school New York society that she marries into, the old families, surprise, don't have the kind of money that will keep her in the lifestyle to which she's become accustomed. And she, she wants accustomed. more. That's the she thing wants about more. She wants more yeah. ribbons. She wants, she wants more, more boats. She wants more gold. She wants more dances. She wants Insatiable. Insatiable. She goes to Europe and 
proceeds to make a series of conquests there, and on and on it goes. Um, when I read this, I read the novel for f- the first time, maybe during the pandemic, a few years ago, and it was totally shocking because it feels so new and fresh. People are not that different. Even though they are operating under a different set of conditions, it's not that different what she wants. She wants to marry up. She wants her fun. Um, she she, You know this kind of type. Like, you've seen her on Gossip Girl. Yeah. And I think finding that modernity in the past is like the it's the great thing about some of these books is the great thing about some of these adaptations do you guys i guess one thing that i would like to think about is where is this trend gonna lead (laughs) like what's gonna i mean we can't pride and prejudice (laughs) on the moon Um. (laughs) (laughs) i mean you know but the thing is it's like when these pride and prejudice rejiggerings um Started coming in, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and you know all these versions. I could not believe these like mashups. I was like, "Are people crazy? Why do they want to read this?" You know, it was a fad. It was a fad. It was a fad, but it was a fad that existed. I'm wondering if that's uh, is that where we're going with this? Like, you know, the sort of yeah, Mm. like Pride and Prejudice on the Moon, like. What's what's going to yeah. happen? What do we want to happen? Well, like, what would be your ideal situation? Yeah. Well, there was a you know there there was a trend, and it, maybe it's still a trend for bringing some of these texts into the totally present day mm-hmm. and doing like Clueless, which is based on Emma um, Bridget Jones's diary. Yeah. So, you know, a, a, a different route, a different route, possibly. Yeah, and 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 possibly also a kind of like more complete one in a sense, or like a more. Um, intentional one than what we are getting right now. Well, Alex mentioned earlier the theater, which I think is instructive mm. because if you like just jump back to a period that we is, I guess, before the period that we usually associate with the period drama, the the, the time of Shakespeare, the Elizabethan era. Right. Um, those stories which do contain certain themes for us that we kind of bracket within that time mm. became a kind of repertory. And then you get these, you know, the the sort of the Ethan Hawke Hamlet and stuff like that. Yes, that sort of totally kind of plants those ideas in the in, in the current day. Mm-hmm. So I think what might happen once we sort of um, excise what that actual period has for for us, and the and the themes become paramount. The the stories will become something that we mm-hmm. plant more firmly in the present. Yeah, like Pride and Prejudice becomes Hamlet, and we. And we decide that we can anchor it and and mess with it and actually bring it into the present instead of trying to, like, right. make Lizzie Bennet say, gee whiz, or whatever. Yeah, and suddenly, like, listen to disco right. or something. Right. Right. Yeah. So you keep the text but have a kind of contemporary presentation in some way is what you're saying. I, I think so. Or yeah. to treat it like European directors treat Shakespeare, which is like, let's truly fuck with it. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. So, so right, right. Which is not always successful, but, but can be invigorating. Can be. So I think a lot of these newer uh, examples of the period drama that we've been talking about really look to make history, quote unquote, relatable, right? And I'm wondering if you guys think that there are limits to this, right? I mean, the past is arguably the past. <laughs> and it's not – that's right. what the, – the fact that it's not the present it was, it's, is what makes it the past – and it's the past is arguably different and not necessarily always relatable to our contemporary experience. Mm-hmm. 
So the, the, there, there, are, there are maybe limits to this kind of uh, trying uh, attempt to, to bring things into our present moment. Well, you know, I think hmm, I think that I have to believe. I, I want to make sure I believe this, but I, I think I do have to believe that the past is always retrievable and always mm-hmm. um, rife with analogy, mm-hmm. um, that it is always, in some sense, usable for us in the present. Yeah. But what is amazing about that is that you have to recover it and that you have the, – the, the remoteness, the strangeness of the past, mm-hmm. whether it is language – whether it is clothing, whether it is gar- whatever it is, right? Um, the strangeness of the past is precisely what makes it amazing when we find out that it is relatable to us. So if you make everything relatable, well, you've you've uh, you've eliminated the thrill of discovery. Right. What's the point? Right. What's the point? And so there is like this this thing of condescension is a way of um, hopping over difficulty, and difficulty is the. The juice is the, of the motor, past. right? Is, yeah. is the reason for the season. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> what do you think, Alex? Mm, I thought that was so beautifully said. You know, I, I think that's right. That the kind of the necessity of estrangement. Yeah, I think we're at a limit with this genre, frankly. Like it's, it's I think it's reached a point of cliche, which means precisely that you can predict exactly how it's going to go and what's going to happen. Yeah. And that the details are, are of no consequence because the genre cliches substitute for character, for story, for beliefs. You know, one thing that I think is very interesting about recovering the past through a good period piece, whether it be in literature or on screen or whatever, is you have to contend with a different set of morals and moral values. Mm -hmm. And um, like – the kind of scrambling of that with our contemporary morals and moral values, that is where I think the dilution is coming in. Mm. And often the writers we're talking about, Wharton or Henry James and something like The Wings of the Dove, you know, they're extremely critical of the morals and the mores of the time. Yeah, they don't just accept them. Right. It's not like wholesale. it's not like we need a contemporary condescending eye to kind of shake a finger at it and say, like, well, let's change things up. So the self-critique embodied in some of those works, um, yeah, is really fascinating. And to recover that is seems extremely worthwhile. Totally. If that makes any sense at all. Right. Yeah. And 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 the the elision of it or the condescending elision of it is is maybe at the heart of some of the failures that we're seeing with this new new genre. Yeah, I just think like the question of relatability, it's going to happen in the substance, not on the surface. And right. what's fun about the surface of these period pieces is how unrelatable it is and how completely fantastical it all seems. And what feels relatable is that flash of character recognition or that flash of soul recognition. And the spirit. The spirit. Yeah, the spirit. The spirit. And I think it's really important to give that kind of an escape valve through character as opposed right. to like bring it and applique it directly onto someone in the present. To steal a phrase from the great city of Austin, keep the past weird. Keep it weird. Keep it weird. Keep it weird. Guys, a beautiful point to end on. You guys were both so smart today. Yeah. Thank keep you for weird. talking with me. You were um, smart too. And you were thank- smart. <laughs> smart too, Naomi. <laughs> thank you. Um, and we'll see everyone next week. Fantastic. This has been Critics at Large. Our senior producer is Rhiannon Corby, and Alex Barish is our consulting editor. 
Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Alexis Quadrado composed our theme music. And we had engineering help today from James Yost, with mixing by Mike Kutchman. You can find every episode of Critics at Large at newyorker.com slash critics. Also, you can now email us. If you've got ideas for topics you'd like to hear us talk about or thoughts about the show in general, or if you just want to say hi, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at themail at newyorker.com. See you next Thursday. Hello there, radio listeners. It's Luke Burbank, host of LiveWire. Each week, we bring you riveting and unexpected conversations with the people behind some of the most interesting entertainment and culture out there today. Plus, we're going to introduce you to great music and outrageously funny comedy. And you get to hang with me and our announcer, Elena Passarello, as we talk about the best news of the week. So please, don't miss LiveWire. LiveWire.